out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the guitarist John Ellis, one-time member, though I think he still is a bit, uh, with the vibrators and also with the Stranglers, Peter Gabriel, Peter Hamill, and um, lots more besides. Anyway, this is the interview. And um, as always, after a few minutes of casual chat to get to know each other, we got down to that very interesting subject. That was the early formative years. Indeed, you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? Anyway, this is it. John, take it away. Uh, Well, uh, the thing is, my... It's kind of difficult, really, because when I was a kid, my mum liked music a lot. And so in our house, in our old wind-up gramophone, we had quite a lot of sort of R&B, proper rhythm and blues, and American jazz kind of music, which was, I found, I liked it. But when I think about it, because I do a show called uh, My Life in Network, well, I used to, before Corona, I do a show called My Life in Negatives, and I, I project images from my photo archive, and one of them is my mum and dad, and I talk about how the music your parents like kind of seep, you, it goes in through osmosis, and my mum liked all this stuff, but also, because I spent a lot of time with my grandmother while my parents were working, and she had an, a radio, and the BBC would play interesting music. Uh, you know, they had a folk radio show. They had all sorts of great stuff. So it was always in the background. So I was hearing music, but not knowing that I necessarily loved it or liked it. And then my mum was really into Lonnie Donegan. And um, I mean, despite the fact that he had all those novelty hit records, he's actually incredibly important in the birth of British rock music. I mean, I don't know if you know much about Lonnie Donegan. I did well only mainly mainly through people like John Peel and then sort of the influence he had on the Beatles and Bob Dylan really. Well, yeah, but yes, and that's it. But also, he's one of the first people to introduce blues into the uh, UK. It's a very interesting story. So, because he had these kind of strange, quirky, novelty hit records, when we went on holiday to places great like Great Yarmouth, where they had these big theatres he would often be on. And so I went to see Lon Donegan early on. And you know, he was playing R&B a lot of the time. When he wasn't playing his novelty records, he was playing blues. So although I didn't know it at the time, he, there was this music that I eventually grew to love. And also when I was young, people like Cliff and the Shadows were really big. I remember going to pantomime and seeing Cliff and the Shadows in pantomime at the London Palladium. So there's guitar music, twangy guitar music. So... All these influences were around me as a young, sort of coming into my younger and teenage years and then coming into my teenage years. And of course, by 13 or 14, you know, Cream and Hendrix and the birth of what we now call British rock music sort of exploded onto my transistor radio. And just at a time as a teenager, I'm looking for stuff to identify with, you know, and, and I was also very into sort of uh, Tamla Motown and all that stuff. So, you know, lots of fantastic musical influences floating around all over the place. Yes. Did you, um, did you, um, at that stage, 
do any music lessons or get you know like go and play the piano or sort of someone uh, give you a guitar or anything like that well my my grandmother bought me a cheap guitar at which I twanged around on and I did have a few lessons when I was about 14 I think around about just a few lessons but not really mostly I'm self-taught a self-taught guitarist Yes, and were you? And did you at that stage? I mean, how did your parents say start to sort of re- respond to things like the sort of the rise of the kind of counterculture or the hippie movement, and you know that suddenly listening to quite radically different sound and music that was coming out of the the radio? Well, you know, if I was playing Captain Beefheart <laughs> when my mum walked in, she didn't get it, of course, because you know it's the, it's the age thing. It's like I don't get quite a lot of hip hop. You know, it's we become exiled, don't we, through our different age groups. Um, <clears throat> they wouldn't have liked it very much. They wouldn't have got it. Um, my mum liked the Beatles because, you know, it was kind of R&B, a lot of it was R&B based. But my dad wasn't into that much into music anyway, so he wouldn't have, have had much of a say about music anyway. Yes. And did you, I mean, when you were sort of 15, say, there was the the summer the summer of love, wasn't there? The the kind well, that's of sixty seven. Don't six... forget. So that's yeah, that's the big summer of love. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to a lot of the free festivals at Hyde Park, and uh, I was just too young to go to places like um, oh, those those really cool gigs where the people UFO. were played in Covent. Yeah, UFO. Yes. Just on, just missed that by probably six months. Yes, and there was. I did go to lots. Of, you know, I went to a lot of the early festivals when festivals were a, a kind of new invention. So me and my mates would go off. So I, mean, I saw Jimi Hendrix at Woburn Abbey, which was fantastic. And I think I was at the first, I think I was at the first Glastonbury festival. And so, you know, we, we were, we were kind of young it, but in, in the birth of that thing. Yes, absolutely. My God, you got down to Glastonbury in 1970 to, to see that very sort of, um, yes, I think you got free milk as well as, an entry yeah, into and the... then we, then, that, then then the ones, the other one at uh, Shepton Mallet, not so long after that. Uh, so we got to go to see the good festivals and, and a lot of the good gigs. As I said, the free, all the free Hyde Park gigs, the, the free gigs at Parliament Hill Fields, which were amazing. Saw Pink Floyd there. So and then the Roundhouse had these amazing Sunday afternoons called Implosion, which were like from mid, midday till mid to late at night and. I mean, basically, for about four months, Bowie opened every show on acoustic guitar before, just before Space Oddity was a big hit. Nobody knew knew who he was, really. Yes, you didn't by any chance catch that performance he did with Tony Visconti. I think he was in a band that only lasted for one gig, but it was quite—I don't know—they rated. Well, where, where was it at? I don't know. I think. Well, I think it was. It could have been one of those London places like the Roundhouse or mm, something. Possibly. Um, but my memory's shot anyway, so I can't... Yes. Half the time, I can't remember my own name. So asking me about anything from the past is a bit... You know, I clearly have great memories. The Savile Theatre gigs, for example, were pretty astonishing at that period. Um, but in that you're, if you're talking about formative things, you know, I could really... I do a, a walk called uh, Rock and Stroll. I walk around all the places in London that have influenced me or places I've played and... I take people to what was the Savile Theatre, and I say, "Look, I saw Pink Floyd here with Fairport Convention, and uh, and the birth of Yes, and I saw Jimi Hendrix there. 
So, you know, these were really, really important gigs for me. And I saw lots of blues bands, actually, in, in smaller clubs. So when I was young, when you're young, you've got tons of energy. You can go to gigs every night. You can walk home if you miss the bus. So, you, you know, it was the combination of energy, love of music, and the fact that there was so much of it about, which was fantastic. Yes, because you, you know, interesting with your age, because it wasn't like you just got the, the sort of the 60s stuff and then... As, as as we sort of have alluded to, you know, then the next generation of 16 to 18-year-olds come along and they want their own <clears throat> heroes and soundtrack and that could be something that, you know, a couple of When you hit 20, you think, I don't really get this latest sound and, and that's when you realise you've just become a bit of an old person, even at the age of 20. But then, yeah. but you, you also, you, you got the 60s, but then you were getting to that perfect age <clears throat> in the 70s of kind of seeing the birth of, I suppose, the glam period as well as prog rock. Well, yeah, I mean, all of it, to be, to be honest, all of it. And the thing about, you know, love of music is when I say I don't, I'm not really interested in music anymore, that's not actually true because I'm not really interested in contemporary pop music anymore. But I am interested in, for example, I used to do a radio show playing world music. It's called International Ear. And some of the most exciting music I still hear that's vibrant and new is not coming out of Europe or America you know, it's coming out of Asia or Africa. And if I find a new composer, I mean, I've just finished listening to The Ring Cycle, Wagner. So I'm still excited and interested in music, but I'm not, I do not buy into being, it being the backdrop of my life as a young person, obviously, anymore, with all that stuff. So I just love music for what it is, but I don't, you know, it doesn't, it's not my badge of who I am. No. Yes. So, so during that period, because you mentioned Captain Beefheart, and then there was obviously mm. people like the Stooges and Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground, mm. and that kind of explosion from the Detroit sound and, mm. and Nuggets and stuff like that, which was kind of like the basis of what punk was going to become. But then before that, we had sort of a glam period. And in New York, you know, you had the CBGB scene and, and Kansas mm. Mac, um Max's Kansas City and, and that kind of explosion of that. So did you, when did you start sort of picking up the guitar and start sort of thinking of music more than just being a spectator but being a player in, in that sort of world? Well, I was, I was probably about 16 and I started to jam a lot with a mate at school who was a drummer called Richard Wernham who went on to be a drummer with the Motors. And um, I, had a, I had a little band while I was... Just as I was coming up to the end of school... Uh, before I took, while I was doing my foundation year at Chelsea. So I had a band called Bazooka Joe with a friend, I started with a friend of mine called Daniel Kleinman, who now does all the James Bond title sequences. Um, and we we just loved that. We went to see Wood, Woodstock and we were so impressed with Sha Na Na. We, we said, let's create a rock and roll band. And we did. We just played pure rock and roll and we, started to do these gigs and loads and loads of the teddy boys of you know, the London rock and roll scene turned up. It was bizarre. It was very surreal. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm quite good at this. I quite like it. Um, but I never thought about doing it as a living. I just enjoyed doing it. So, you know, I had Bazooka Joe and then I, then I kind of, I get bored with things. So I got out of Bazooka Joe and eventually the first, the next band, proper band I sort of, put together or got involved with was the vibrators and then it became a living yes and then, 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 the act, 
So I accidentally fell into the business of being in the music business. Yes, and that, that was it. But be, but did you, when you left school, did you go to college or did you... Uh, when a... I left school, I did a foundation year at Chelsea School of Art. Um, and then I took two years, two or three years off, where I did some very, very interesting jobs. I was a film librarian for the British Film Institute, which was brilliant because I'm... I got endless free tickets to the BFI. I spent half my life at the British Film Institute and um, the National Film Theatre. I was a tree surgeon for a little while. I cleaned people's houses. So I did whatever I needed to do to, you know, to earn a living, but I enjoyed a lot of it. A lot of it was really good. And then I went back to art school. I went, I went to Middlesex, excuse me, Middlesex Polytechnic to do graphic design. And I did most of my degree course. And just as my degree was, you know, with a couple of terms to go, the Vibrators, we had a, we got a record deal. And it was, it was go on the road with the Vibrators or stay and get a boring old degree. So I decided to go off and live the rock and roll, roll lifestyle. Yes. And you must be quite um, amazed but that Bazooka Joe had, you know, Danny. And then you also had Stuart, who went on to become Adamant. So you... That's, that's quite something to hit that sort of, you know, it's like going to Vegas and sort of hit, you know, that was, that was quite a line-up, isn't it? Well, the Bazooka Joe went through a lot of line-ups. Um, I, that, uh, Adam, Adam, and, Adam and I and Daniel were all in art school together. There's just, that's the connection. We were all in the same class. And I'd left the band when Adam, a long time before Adam joined. Right. But I did do a couple of gigs standing, uh, standing in where Adam was on bass guitar. And so, but yeah, I mean, I, the, you know, the thing about Bazooka Joe, the, one of the famous things about Bazooka Joe is they are the band that the Pistols were supporting at the Pistols' first ever gig. Wow, that's quite, um, yes. And, and Adam, Adam designed the poster. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's quite in, interesting because Bazooka Joe is quite legendary, but we never made a record. Yes, absolutely. I suppose it's a bit like one of those bands in Liverpool called Death School. I mean, they did make a record, but they, they were ones that were, It's like they were around in 1977. I think everybody went to see them and were influenced and formed a band, but they and went on to become quite, you know, I don't know, successful, famous or whatever. And Death School were one of those very cult bands that no one really knows much about. Yeah, but it's lot, it's, it happens all the time. You, you know, some people come... Some people make it, some people become successful because they want to be successful and they are driven by the will for success. Some people like me kind of get, you know, I don't know if you could call my career successful or not, but it all happened really out of luck more than anything. Yes, absolutely. Because I talked to, um, it was Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness and he, oh, yeah. and he said that, they were two years too early, kind of for really sort of the capture punk, but everybody who went to see them and got excited by them went on and formed bands and they became much more successful than he did. So, you well, know. There is, that's another thing, yeah, that's exactly right. You can be absolutely astonishing, but record companies don't want to know. And then someone who sees you and, and kind of waters it down a bit, a record, so it's a, it's, but it's not, it's not just music, it's the same with all arts you know, with writing and with visual arts, with everything, really. You know, you've got to be there at the right time, right place, with the right bit of luck and the right connections. All these things, all they all line up. And, you know, for some people, it's because their parents were successful 
and they just zoom, zoom in on the back of their parents. So it's a whole load of things. You, know, you could write a whole book just about what is success, how do you, how do you achieve success. You know, we're talking about success in terms of material terms. Of course, some people might say success is being learning to be happy and and, to, and just enjoying life. And that doesn't mean to say it's none of the accoutrements of success we're talking about. Yes. I think with age, a lot of people then start sort of thinking about contentment and just feeling kind of peaceful for a day. I think well, that's... I think this will be one of the amazing, the amazing things that come out of Corona will be a complete revision of for many people, of what is important and what isn't. Yes, this is true. So when the band, when the Vibrators formed, there was like mm. three, four, there's four piece, wasn't it, to begin with? Yeah, it's four, yeah. And did that, did you sort of feel that there was kind of quite, did it all click kind of quite quickly and you, you know, there was a sense that things were progressing, yeah, relatively well? No, what happened was I was bored at art school and I thought I'd fancy having another look, you know, I, I was really missing the old Bazooka Joe vibe of just getting up and bashing out some songs. So I rang some friends, Pat Collier, my old mate from school, uh, Eddie Edwards, who'd been a very old friend and he'd roaded for lots and lots of bands. I said, Eddie, do you fancy being in this band? He said, well, what, what should I play? I said, well, we need a drummer. Well, I don't play drums, but I've got a drum kit in the van. I'll borrow it and I'll learn. So two weeks after I started playing, we did our first gig. And by the, and the the other thing is the singer Knox. He was he his period was the fifties because he's considerably older than me, and so he was playing in proper rock and roll bands in the late fifties and early sixties. So he went through like three generations of of. I mean, he's a really interesting guy, and he's got some amazing artwork and diaries. He's got hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of books that he made himself, which are diaries of his life, with drawings and artifacts and writing. I mean, that's a that's a book in itself, or several actually. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting lineup. So basically, we got going in our first our first gig because I was. Um, because I was part of the sort of bookings for the for my the art school that I was in, I was a sort of social secretary, if I remember correctly. We booked us, or I booked us in for a gig at Hornsey Art School of Art, one of their annexes, and we were supporting the Stranglers, believe it or not, and that was our first ever gig. Yeah, and then we started to play. We had a residency at the uh, Lord Nelson Holloway Road. Basically, because we were just quite anarchic, we'd like, for example, we'd do a segue for, of Interstellar Overdrive going into Day Tripper. And we were just having fun. And because we were having fun, it was quite contagious. So we started to get a bit of, you know, the places started to fill up. And then a, an agent found out about us and said, do you want to do some gigs out of London? So we started to play out of London and eventually, and then we started to do some demos. Um, mostly of other people's songs, and then we started to do our own songs, and eventually, one day, we were playing at the Lord Nelson, and Mickey Most was there with Chris Bedding, and um, he signed us up, and we did, we made a couple of records that never got released, because while we were making the records for Mickey, our manager, who we by then had taken on, got us a deal at Epic, so we had to, we broke our contract with Mickey and got right, rightfully sued, uh, and then we, our first proper release was with 
Um, well, actually, no. I think our first record was with Chris Spedding on Rack Records. And then our proper, our own record was on Epic, our own f- first singles and album. Right, blimey. And how did you... Because Mickey Most, during the early 70s, was kind of the man, wasn't he? But then... No, like... in, the late, in, the, in the mid-60s onwards. I mean, you, you, you read up on how many really, really famous records Mickey's, Mickey produced. Amazing. Yes. But then he definitely, like a lot of time people, they have that moment, don't they, where they're really on that zeitgeist... You know, they you know everything they touch is gold, and then one day you just think, God, I haven't heard of anything that he's particularly done. I mean, that's a bit of a sweeping statement, but I just remember people like, you know, he was doing all that stuff with Susie Quattro when I was kind of into glam, I suppose, or you know that that kind of period. And obviously, before that, you know, I was quite young, so I wouldn't have understood it. But then he obviously he's kind of he wasn't able to sort of, you know, and he did, yeah, he did all that stuff with Mud as well, didn't he? I mean, but there was a period where obviously he wasn't the go-to producer anymore, was he? Well, he didn't really get us for a start. He didn't really understand what we were about. So um, basically most of the record, we we probably spent about four days with him in total and basically all we wanted to talk about was what was it like working with Donovan or what was it like working with Jeff Beck. So, but I think if you look at his, everything that he did, his entire discography, you'll find some, probably some interesting records late on that probably most people don't know about. But basically, yeah, he had his time. Like a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have their time. They have their golden time, and then the rest of it is they living off the reputation of the golden time, which, which is why I hate to see bands sort of just churning out crap because they can't let go of the idea that they were successful once. And they still need somehow need to, you know, kind of relive that golden period. But it's really horrible to see in a lot, a lot of the time. Yes, it is. It's a bit grim. But um, but the interesting thing is, because because a lot of the bands that I've done, you know, especially from the sort of I suppose the eighties, you know, they 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 were like gatekeepers that were kind of really critical to their kind of life, you know, as a band, because, you know, often it's just like you play in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you in that kind of, probably not London possibly, because you might have got a big audience, but definitely in cities like Norwich and elsewhere. And then, you know, people, there was like the music papers in those days were quite big. And and obviously John Peel was the kind of the go-to person, um, for, for sort of giving people that bigger audience. And, and he sort of definitely got the band quite quickly because you, you did several sessions for him, didn't you? Yeah, which was great because, I mean, in my teenage years, I used to listen to John Peel before even he got on Radio 1 when he was doing uh, the Pirates at Radio Luxembourg. Did you listen to and The Perfume Garden? Yeah, a lot. I mean, that, see, that, that's influential when you've got poets and people reading religious tracks as well as very avant-garde experimental music that's a that's a sort of bomb you know it's a mine that goes off in your head yes. and you know that's why it was important plus the fact you know he championed a lot of bands that nobody had heard about you know Far, for example you know or john fay one of my favorite guitarists you know i wouldn't have known about john fay if it hadn't been for john peel but there were also some great some deep live djs like jeff Dex, people like jeff dexter who were playing really, really great music. So they, they are important, for sure. So it was very nice to be asked to do the John Peel sessions. Yes, definitely. And obviously getting onto a major quite quickly, sometimes for sort of, I suppose, 
alternative bands they're often on them you know like uh, independent and then they they think oh let's go for a major and then it's sort of the end <laughs> the relationship doesn't happen but you did pure mania with them sort of in 77 what was that experience because you worked with robin haywood uh, may mayhew, on mayhew. That. yes yeah. so well, well robin had done some live sound for us so uh on a tour that we did and so in fact yeah he, he'd done the live actually so we did a show we did a show supporting we did a tour a very small tour supporting iggy pop when bowie was playing keyboards and i can't rem- i'm can't remember if that was before or after we got our deal, but Robin had done work with Bowie, I think, but he'd done some live sound for us, and we liked what he did with his live, so we said, well, would you produce our album? So he he did a pretty good job of producing the first album, Pure Mania. Yes, and did that feel a bit surreal, sort of, you know, I don't know, Iggy Pop, David Bowie at that stage must have been quite sort of something, and Iggy Pop must have been, because he'd done, you know, his one of, well... The studios were still quite quite cold, but well, he's so... Iggy, Iggy is one of the most charismatic performers I ever saw live. I mean, you know, from those shows, he was absolutely fantastic. Yes, and the audience must have been quite kind of um, passionate because obviously people were going not just to see Iggy Pop, but also because Bowie was there as well. They yeah. Cried. So they liked us, unlike the, the tour we did with Ian Hunter, but they really, the, the audience on those gigs liked us a lot because uh, we were getting played a lot on you know, radio shows and things as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was nice. It was just our first taste of success, really. Yes. And then, I mean, with with most people, I mean, most bands, they have a kind of a five-year narrative of, you know, 18, oh, I don't know, 12, 18 months getting together, a single, John Peel plays at a session, the first album, you know, tours around the country, and then the slightly tricky kind of follow-up album can be kind of sometimes hit and miss. So how did you... Fine, because obviously you're in that honeymoon phase and, and you, you sort of got success quite quickly and also progress. You know, you weren't just kind of thinking, God, this is going nowhere fast. We already sort of, it was, it was kind of moving really quickly. Plus the punk movement had sort of exploded all over the place. So that you had that kind of energy that was probably quite similar in the 60s happening exactly at the time when you wanted it to be. Well, v, V2, which was our second album, was really, I really think it's a good album, actually. One of you know albums I'm most proud of in terms of my work as a musician, and uh, I only wrote one song on that album, but that gets very a lot of people ask about that song. Uh, so it was very very good. I got a bit ill during the recording, and then the, when we came to tour the album, our tour was supposed to start in very early in January, and it was very very it was a very cold winter, and I got very heavy cold that was almost flu on day one and it was like a 30-day tour and I was pretty ill during the, the whole of the tour occasionally I had to get carried off stage by the our sort of roadie person a minder uh, so which I think I never kind of physically totally recovered from because it drained so much energy out of me but it was still very exciting you know to do tv shows and we did a lot. We we went basically. We went to Germany, by the way, to to write V2. So and we had a lot of very interesting experiences out there, as well. So it was it was a good. It was interesting. It was a good time. And then at the end of it all, I I was so done in with that flu, that I thought I can't deal with it anymore. So I left the band. Basically. Yes. Did it slightly slightly slip into glandular fever or? 
it could have been anything. I know we didn't never had time to get no fully get me to a doctor properly. It was just gig, 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 gig. And because it was so cold, I mean, I remember doing a gig where I was really at the height of feeling shit, and the dressing room had a a window in it that was literally open to the elements. It was, you know, it, rock and roll is not the glamorous world that a lot of people think it is. A lot of the time, it's shit, to be honest. <laughs> Well, most people have said touring, you know, like the the two hours on stage is great, but the rest of the the day is quite hard going, and you don't. Well, it can be boring. It can be. Yeah, I, I personally think that we not enough is being talked about about mental health issues in performance art, in performance, you know, generally. So you've got all the issues about performance anxiety. You've got issues around personality clashes you've got you know what's going on in your home life i mean there's so much stuff it's not just that jumping on stage and doing your thing for an hour and a half or two hours or whatever it's all the other stuff as well and it's big big stuff actually yes i mean and plus it's why it's why there's so many drug addicts and drunks in the music business and i think it's all, all to do with that yeah. fighting off the demons that are you know always lurking around and Don't I forget that some great artists that hardly ever gig because of stage fright, like Mike Oldfield, for example. Joni Mitchell? Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, but she did a quite few gigs. Uh, well, I think Andy Partridge from XTC didn't like gigging. Yes. No, it does. So, sorry, you're going to hear a weird noises. Just wait a second. Sorry. That's all right. No. I'm just pulling my blinds down. Oh, okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, well, I was, just, I was just going to say on that, that sort of the point... Because cause at that age, it's like no one really sort of thinks this is definitely going to happen unless you're really confident and slightly deluded. So when it does happen, you know, the world of that suddenly becomes success, there's probably no time to sort of contemplate or think it through or someone to... No. And plus being young normally and the, you know, the world that is kind of just drink, casual drink, drinking and then casual smoke and then everything else mm. that goes with it. So I could imagine the damage that is quite long-lasting. Because what's quite interesting, having done a lot of these shows, is the artists that have completely disappeared and occasionally someone mentions stuff, I say something, and it's, it's like, yes, that person that... They're probably sort of, I don't know, in some flat, sort of still recovering from that. what happened to them 30 years ago because it, it was kind of a, a, a weird trip that they probably one day stopped and then just thought, Christ, I've, I've just had a breakdown, I think. Well, you could write a book about just that. For example, well, you know, first of all, the vibrators, you know, if, you, if, we, if we really compare ourselves to other people, we weren't that successful. We had some minor success, which I, I'm very, very grateful for, but you know, I'm quite, I have a lot of... Sort of perspective on it, really. Uh, but you know, you're talking about big artists. I was reading about uh, is it Roger Deacon, the bass player from Queen? Yes. You know, he's a re- more, more or less a recluse now. He doesn't talk to the rest of the band. He doesn't make music. And uh, then you know, classic example might be Sid Barrett. You know, going completely, becoming very ill. Or my, one of my guitar heroes, Peter Green. Three of the guitarists all went bonkers. Yes. You know, so there's lots of bands where people do become very ill. They can't take either the success or they can't take the physical work of touring. They can't take the long-haul flight. I mean, you know, it's amazing how many people... Some people love it, become addicted to it. They just literally can't stop. Even though they're producing shit music, they can't stop. <laughs> You've got to keep going because they love it so much. 
Yes. But there are some people who go, yeah, I don't like it. Why should I carry on doing it? You know, I've done it. And for me, I've done, you know, people say, well, why don't you do, make so much music anymore? Well, I, A, I do make a lot of music, but, you know, I do it and just release it on my own label or I just put it on SoundCloud. It's there. I'm still committed to making music, but I'm not committed to touring or gigging. I like gigging. I do the occasional solo gig. But a lot of, some of the... Some of the reason I don't do it, I say, is because I've got other things to do. I'm, you know, I'm interested in, I've just written a novel, I'm going to write a new one. I'm interested in photography. Music isn't everything. That's the amazing thing. You know, some people don't like music. It's not the be-all and end-all of everything. Yes, well, this is true. But when, but obviously, still being young and sort of in the 70s, you, you had a short-lived group, Rapid Eye Movement. Oh, yeah. Which, um, so was that just kind of, you you know, when when you left the Vibrators, did you have a moment where you just sat down with them and said, look, I'm leaving? Uh, yeah, after the Vibrators, I just went into the management. I said, I've had enough. I'm really, not. you know, if they'd have been a clever management, because our manager was Knox Singer's cousin, and he hadn't had any experience of management. That's uh, why he was managing the tourists. He became the Eurythmics. Yeah. And they got rid of him as well because he didn't have experience. And what he should have said was, um, okay, I think you're saying this because you're really tired and you're really ill. Um, here's 500 quid. Go and have a holiday. And then come back and make... If I'd have done that, I would have probably not left the band because I was talking out of tiredness and exhaustion. But, uh, I mean, it happened. So I was kind of not... Do, didn't do very much for a little while. And then I kind of got a call from J.J. Burnell and who asked me if I'd like to do a tour because he'd just done an album called Euro Man Cometh and he needed a, a live band so he asked me to play guitar and I said okay well I've got a, I'm just doing putting together a little band can, can we do the support a sort of another support so we put this me and Danny again Daniel Kleiman we put this band together with three dancers and uh, it was really interesting, actually. It was a really, really, really interesting show, but then it fell apart at the end of the, the tour, sadly. But I did get a live recording out of it. Yes. And did you, um, at that stage, had you been slightly influenced by L- Lindsay Kemp or Michael Clark Dance Company? Well, I love Lindsay Kemp. I mean, you know, you're talking about influences. When I go do my rock and roll, sh- rock and stroll tour, I take people to the Regents. Street Theatre, or Regent's Theatre, whatever it's called, near the BBC, and I say, this is where I saw Lindsay Kemp do Flowers, which was one of the most astonishing live performances I ever saw. Yes. But uh, we, you know, we didn't, we weren't doing mime or anything, but we did, we were doing some interesting stuff with costumes, and because the, the girls were, had, were in Hot Gossip, they were three dancers from Hot Gossip. Wow. So it was a very interesting band, it's a shame we never went on to do more touring and make a proper record. Yes. And, is it, and during that period, I was just curious, I mean, were you, were you sort of developing first as, as a sort of your, you know, musicianship and guitar playing? Well, I was getting better. I mean, you can't not get better. But I was also very interested in electronic music. I'd always, always had been. So I was starting to make some electronic music as well at that period. Um, but, yeah, I guess I was becoming a better guitarist yes because then then kind of interestingly you know the punk period has its moment and it's kind of like it gets a bit like oh dear there's a new load of bands called punk and they're not really that 
good, are they? And they, you know, it gets watered down, and then you had the post-punk, and then you know the Thatcher year from '79, and then lots of unemployment, and and a lot of people, younger people, were sort of doing that sort of job seekers' allowance and enterprise allowance, and then forming bands, and that's kind of the birth of the indie scene of the '80s. But what were you kind of? How were you sort of coping with that transition between suddenly being so kind of on it, you know, on the pulse of what was kind of really happening to then that next period? Because that's often quite an interesting one where you you take, you know, you, you know, like you said, you're, if the manager had been clever, he'd have said, here's £500, go on holiday, come back. But then, you know, when you realise that suddenly there's another kind of scene coming along with a different haircut, different look, oh. slightly different producers. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting how... As an artist, you think, oh, okay, things have slightly moved on. There's new young kids in town. Well, uh, to be honest, I wasn't in- interested in hanging out with the new young kids in town because I'd done my hanging out with young kids in town. What I was interested in was, in, was in exploring music, like the electronic, because I had a synthesizer pretty early on. So I was interested in doing that. And, um, you know, I was just zipping about. I was enjoying just doing not very much and... Then, um, as I said, the year JJ's thing came along, the Euroband thing, and then I got asked to do a session for a band called The Drones. And then that's kind of how I got hooked up with Peter Gabriel. So, you know, not another, I wasn't, there are, there are, I knew musicians were very proactive. They would go for auditions, they would ring people up. I was not, because, because the Vibrators was, it was a bunch of mates who just wanted to have a good time. That was kind of my ethos even then. I've never been driven by the idea of becoming successful. So I didn't go out of my way to get gigs. I'm sure I could have done, but I wasn't interested. But, you know, something came along and said, okay, that sounds good. And then I I jumped on that particular piece of luck. Yes, because Peter Gabriel, because that's the... the, Because my brother's seven years older and he had the... His period, I suppose, was prog rock with a bit of, you know, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath thrown in. But it was kind of basically, yes, Genesis and the work of Rick Wakeman he loved so much. And and I'd sneak into his room and listen to these records with great enthusiasm at a young age. And a bit like you were saying, you know, I was just fascinated. I didn't really know what prog prog rock was. I just was like, oh, my God, I've been told I mustn't go into his room and listen to these records. So obviously you... You go into the room and you listen to these records constantly thinking, that's really strange. This is kind of amazing, you know, and, and so that's quite influential. And then, you know, obviously, you know, Peter Gable comes out of that sort of, you know, Genesis period. And oh. then, you, then you find yourself sort of work on one of, well, touring and, and also on oh. his kind of fourth album. So did that yeah. feel like things had really moved quite fast, that you'd gone from the vibrators, you know, which were still, you know, put in that punk period to somebody who who's much more like an artist. Well, what was interesting, yes, I mean, it was that. It did feel like that. Several things. First of all, I kind of, in terms of career, it was obviously a step up, a huge amount, much more money than I'd ever seen before, and playing stadiums, not little clubs. So there was that step up. But I was also working with one of my big electronic music heroes, Larry Fast, who was the keyboard player in the band. So, you know, it was a kind of whirlwind. I was in this world, black, you know, pretty much blagging it because, you know, the drummer and the play, the, the bass player was Tony Levin, arguably one of the greatest bass players ever, and the drummer was the great Jerry Marotta. So I was totally out of my depth as a musician. So black, kind of blagging it, but also 
living off the sort of energy of doing the shows, not being a particularly brilliant musician, but getting by, you know, getting by just on the sheer enthusiasm of the way I played, I guess. Yes. Well, that's, that's, one, that's one amazing geek to blag, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then I met Peter Hamill through the Gabriel Connection. Yes. And, and that... uh, so then I went on to do loads and loads of touring with Hamill in solo, in sort of duo and band mode and quite a lot of records. Yeah. And Which was much for me, even though it's kind of less money, you know, it's less uh, sort of career uh, height, as it were. It was a, Peter Hamill's a cult, huge cult artist. And it's probably some of the best music I've ever played as a musician I did for Peter Hamill, not Peter Gabriel. Yeah. I mean, did that, your 80s period, because to be honest, I was absolutely obsessed with the indie world and, you know, John Peel on the NME on a Wednesday and, and oh. just loved all the kind of jingly jangly sound. But interestingly enough, it was John Peel who in- introduced me to like the Bundu Boys and Thomas McFumo and Mbelia Bell and all that kind of African stuff that was coming out on real world, but also Earthworks as well, yeah, and just yeah, yeah. lots of, yeah. of obscure, like the Four Brothers, anything from Zimbabwe just had that sound, and it was just extraordinary. So, you know, and luckily a lot of those bands, like the you know the Bundu Boys, were touring quite a bit, so, you know, we were always going to those gigs, as well as the kind of reggae stuff with Sly and Robbie oh. and, and Aswad and Misty and Roots and Sly, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was kind of, it was, it was kind of, everything was kind of, at that point in my life, was kind of getting mixed together quite in a you know and being relatively young was was just incredibly excited so but you you were sort of you were definitely in the serious muso period during the 80s weren't you Poor well, kind of i didn't want to see myself as a serious but i was working you know with with hamill in particular it was very very complicated music um but i think i pulled it off and and, and as a result i've kind of got a bit of a fan club around the world, not many people, but there's a lot of people who like what I do and like my work. And I was also releasing my own records as well at the time, you know, some electronic albums and an album of kind of old demos and things. So, yeah. And then um, then the Stranglers thing happened. Yes, which kind of was quite interesting in your career because it's like... It's like there's a few definite kind of almost chapters, like the 90s. Oh, yes, the cha- you know, that was your 90s, really, oh. wasn't it? Through well, the- yeah, so I joined the band in 19, went through to 2000. Yes. 1919 to 2000, yeah. And, um, and obviously the Stranglers, you know, had quite a, quite a following, but, the, you know, with a different lead singer and then with you on the guitar as well. So did that... Um, so how did how did the sort of the band feel, you know, during that time and sort of... Because fans can be fickle, can't they, let's face oh, it? Oh, a lot of the fans hated us, me and Paul, and still do. But I think it was a very, very strong live band. I think we did some amazing gigs and we produced some OK records uh, and then it all went horribly wrong and I got out when while the going was good, basically. Yes. Did you... Because um, you worked on the... Well, you did four albums with them, didn't you? Yeah. About time, recently in Red. And it's a live album, I think. Yeah. Did you feel when you were recording the Coupe de Grace, was that a kind of, was that a difficult album to be on? Well, basically I'd written, it was, yeah, it was not a pleasant experience because I'd written a load of songs for the pot, you know, what was supposed to happen is every, all the songwriters were supposed to write some material for an album, throw it into a pot, and then with the producer decide which tracks to use. 
Um, so I wrote 12 songs that Paul came on. I, I demoed them at my studio in Crouch Hill, and Paul came along and put his vocals on. David, the producer, came over and said, oh, this is great. I'm going to take this. I, I can definitely see a lot of this material making it to the album. It goes up to Cambridge where the rest of the guys were, and then I found out they don't want to use any of it, and it's all going to be JJ stuff. And it was, when I heard it, it, it was clear that it was, you know, I'm not trying to be slag JJ off or anything, but it, everyone knows that the material was really inferior. But it was JJ asserting his dominance in the band. And I was just upset that, that anyone, even from a business point of view, would knowingly put out bad material when there was clearly better material available. So that, that album eventually I, I released on my own record label because the fans kept asking about it. Yes. Which, which what's, what, what, is that called, which one was that? Uh, the, the album I've released is called uh, Infinity Drive. Infinity Drive. Yes, because before before that you worked with Andy Gill, didn't you, in Gang of Four for your? Well, he produced. Yeah, he produced um, Written in Red. And was that and was that experience kind of feeling okay? Well, it was great working with Andy because, but I know that Jeff wasn't enamoured with the process, and Dave and Dave and well, if you read the biography, No Mercy, that Buckley wrote, you'll see that. By then, I mean, it was clear when Paul and I joined that Dave and JJ's enthusiasm for the project was getting less and less. They were turning up less and less to to sessions, and it was really like trying to... It was like some sort of Fitz, uh, sort of um, Werner Herzog movie where you have to drag a, a ship across the Andes, and it felt like that sometimes, just getting them enthusiastic about making a record. Yes. It was... So it was kind of difficult, but it was nice working with people like Andy. Yeah, God, that must be strange, wasn't it? It's a murky world. And then what? What? It's a murky world. Yeah. It's too. But then you, you've obviously. But like you said, you know, you you haven't just continued in music, but you've sort of kind of branched out into other things. I mean, what what sort of then? You know, because cause from there you've you've had various other projects that you've been sort of working on, as well as oh. training workshops, and you started your own record label. To oh. is that to because you just wanted to take control of of you know the music that was coming out. No, it's because no one else would have released it. It was totally commercially not going to happen. So I thought, well, you know, if I if I can get the money together to put this stuff out, and of course these days you don't even need to put out make physical products, so it's very easy to make digital downloads. So I just thought, I'd, I want to make all my stuff available. If people want to find it, it will be in one place. But I've also played on a lot of other records that I'm, I'm very proud of. Like I worked with a German band called Islo Mob at the same time I was working with Gabriel, and that's a great album, too, actually. One never got released. So, But even now, you know, I, I just before Corona, I was doing a show with a comedian, where I was doing a set, he was doing a set. I, I had a show called My Life, My Life in Negatives, as I said, talk, playing songs about my photographs and telling stories. So I'm still interested in the whole art of songwriting, and I'm still interested in making recordings, but it's in a completely different world. I mean, we're in a different world anyway because of corona, but it was not in a competitive business environment. I was just doing it because I loved it. And... But, you know, one day I might get up and think, I'm going to do some music today, but I'm quite equally happy getting up and going, 
or I'm going to scan a lot of my old negatives and make some prints, or I'm going to start on my next book. They're all important to me. Yes, absolutely. And then in you, you, you started, you formed a community organisation as well, didn't you, in sort of about 15 years ago? Yeah, the, the, the Luna, Luma group. Yes. And uh, we basically, we just did workshops for people, sometimes with kids with special needs and sometimes with doing stuff with kids with, uh, you know, with um, educational needs. So it was a, just an interesting time. It was a way of earning a living because I, around me there were lots of artists um, who I thought, well, if I can, if we can find them work, then they can get some money from freelance, you know, freelancing, teaching people their stuff. Unfortunately, it was really difficult to get people to sign up to be our be work for Luma because you know, people were quite snobby actually. But I did tons. I, I I raised money, lottery money, to do loads and loads of free guitar lessons for schools, and we did quite a few things. We did a lot of stuff for Mind and chari- other charities. Yes, and you also worked with um, Christopher Smith, didn't you? The the other one of the founder members of um, Vandergraaf. Oh, you mean Judge Smith? Yes. Judge, yeah, Judge is a very very good friend of mine, and I've done five or six albums albums with Judge and a few shows as well. I mean, yeah. fact, actually, talking about work I'm prou- proud of working with Judge, some of my best playings with Judge. So, you know, there was an al- project I did with him that took about three years of me going down to visit him for weekends worth of playing while I was working with the Stranglers. That's called Curly's Airships. And he's really, if you like prog, Judge is very important. It's, his work is astonishing, actually. Yeah. I mean, when you, I mean, because obviously... He, and he'd be a very good person to talk to because he's a very interesting man. I mean, that's, a, that's quite, a, that's... Um... That album features a lot of people, doesn't it? Yeah, Arthur Brown's on it. A lot. Uh, loads of people. Peter Hamill. Lena Lovitch. Lena lives in Norwich, by the way. Yes. Oh, I think she was um, planning to tour, actually. I mean, do you, uh, when you, um, you still see the, the vibrators still playing, does that, does that sort of bring a smile to your face, the thing that, that, you know, the band that you helped form are still sort of able to um, keep rocking after all these decades? Well, we, we just <laughs> we still do occasionally make a record. We look just before Corona, we made a new album with Chris Bedding, which is going to coming out on Cleopatra Records later on this year. And we and every now and again, someone does a box set of our stuff. And we did a we did a few gigs. We did a couple of gigs last year, sort of our final get-togethers, and it was a lot of fun. But I, Eddie needs to earn a living. They all need to earn a living. So. But this is the thing about people who grind on and grind on, because you know if you got if you if that's what you've been doing for a long time, you're not going to sort of stop and say, oh, I'm going to be a gardener, even though it might be a good thing to do. You know, some people just can't stop the habit of playing. So sometimes you go and see bands, and it's kind of not as good as it's not as good as it used to be, kind of thing. But I, you know, that's up to them. But as I said, we've just done a just did a new album. Uh, the original lineup plus Chris Bedding. Yes, dear old me. There was always that rumour that he was one of the Wombles, but I'm never sure if that's true. Yeah, he was. Was he Orinoco? No, that was uh, Mike Bat, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just remember. Did he do a song called Mo- Motorbiking? Yeah, he did. Yeah, we did. We uh, did it on top of the pops with him. Blimey, 
that was that was one of those songs, a bit like Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep. It's it's ensconced in my brain. I was quite young at the time, so you know those those songs. It's not a bad little record, actually. No, absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, if you if you could have, you know, I mean, because you've had a phenomenal amount of work. I mean, have you managed to archive every a lot of the stuff that you've done? You know, because because sometimes you just think, God, they. It's hard to sometimes appreciate stuff, especially when it doesn't always end well. But then sometimes with distance of time, you think, actually, that's I can let go of that emotional angst. And uh... um, It depends on what you mean by archive. If you're talking about physically archiving it, I mean, all the stuff's there, and I've digitised a lot of my old stuff. But if you're talking about mentally archiving it, um, you know, for a lot of it I've let go. I've forgotten about a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that wasn't particularly pleasant at the time. I don't need to think about that anymore. So I'm, I kind of tend to, if I'm thinking about the past, which I try to avoid doing, I'd like to think, I mean, you know, right now I'm thinking about the next book or, or what am I going to do with my photography. Or I'm very interested in moving forward, not think living in the past. And that's another thing. I find a lot of artists, they try to live off the past. You know, oh, it used to be great. And then they grind around and flog the T-shirts and flog all the memories. But it's, for me, as an artist, I'm an artist, so I don't want to stop doing new stuff, as it were. Yes. It's archived there somewhere, but it's not important, really. I I wouldn't care if the archive blew up, the mental archive, because the the future is is my future archive. That's what what I'm more interested in, moving on. What, What interesting project can I do now? Yeah, and has has this period because a lot of people often thought, God, what I really could do with is some time to just focus and not be so busy. And then suddenly, hey, presto, you know, there's the opportunity to do it. How have you managed to sort of cope with this kind of year as a as an artist? You mean the Corona year? The yes, corona. the Corona period. Right. So, well, first of all, I've I've done loads and loads of courses. I've done because I use a lot of software, you know, Photoshop, for example, or Ableton, which is music software that I do all my records on, uh, and web design. So I went, I've done loads and loads of online learning. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of relaxing. Um, I've done a little bit of songwriting. I've done a few, finished off some demos that have been hanging around for a long time. But I'm just about to buy a a good quality scanner, and I'm going to start to scan all my old negatives with a view to doing a new show of or a new book of my photography yes and when did you start when when did the photography start to sort of play a major part in your life well when i was at art school and because it was it was a graphic design course but they had a really good photography department and i just got very very interested in photography and i still am i still love looking at photographs yes i know was there any, because I, I also love photos, photography, but are there any particular uh, photographers that you just think, God, they have just absolutely got it? Yeah, yeah, Vivian Meyer. She's amazing. Have you heard of Vivian Meyer? No, but I'll make a note. <laughs> well, there's a film called Finding Vivian Meyer on uh, Netflix. Basically, she was a nanny, an American nanny in the 50s in Chicago. She was born in New York, but her street photography is beyond it's unbelievable it's better than diane arbus and any of those people and there's um, but she was a total amateur i love don mccullin i love people like walker evans those of kudelka brant bill brant of course and so yeah just a lot a lot you know 
the trouble is you can't love everyone because you just there's not enough hours in the day to find out about everyone. But I'd check out Vivian Meyer. I like, will. I, I will have a look at that. And just and just lastly, I mean, if you if you could have because you've had a phenomenal, you know, like life doing so many different things. If you if you Thank could you. have if you if you could have given you know with all this experience, I mean. If you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self starting out, I mean, I just wondered what you would have just kind of whispered in their ear as they were. Oh yeah, I know exactly what it would be. Don't be a wanker, because you know I've been behaved very badly a lot of my life, and very childishly and very foolishly. And I could have, if I'd have been a bit more mature, I would probably could have been a much bigger artist than I ever was, and a much better guitarist than I ever was. But I fucked up a lot of times, so I would definitely give myself a smack around the head and I'd say, "Grow up." And stop being a prick. Yes. What? When did you suddenly have a bit of a moment when you had a look in the mirror and think, I've got to just change this? Uh, well, it's been going ongoing for the last 20 years, really. You know, once I left the Stranglers, you, you go through a period of, of introspection and you know, the looking back bit, which is possibly why I try and avoid it, but... Uh, Either you come to a realization that a lot of the things you've done have been very stupid and not very good decisions. You know, so, um, but that's what it is. You know, I can't. Unfortunately, I don't have a go back in time button on anywhere no. on my body. So <laughs> I just have to. You know, you kind of have to redeem yourself by trying to be a better person now, and uh, you know, just trying to get on and be kinder and more compassionate and better. Yes. Did did the Luma group? project and and work did that feel like you were really sort of giving back to the community and society yeah although we didn't do enough of it but yes but the the other thing is my workshops i do now and my teaching i like to think that's me giving back uh because you know a a lot of people who come to workshops i get a lot of very nice comments from parents uh when i stop teaching them you know they move on they say it, your your teaching wasn't just about my teaching my child to play guitar, but they've definitely become a different and better person. As, you know, so when you get something like that, you kind of think, well, maybe it's all beginning to work properly. Indeed. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. A massive thank you to John John Ellis for giving me the time for that interview. And um, all, I have, all I have to say is goodbye. And... Uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86show and uh, it's all there. Plus, um, all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. So that's it. Have a great week. Stay safe.